Well, if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, please turn in them to Nehemiah 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. Today we continue our series through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Last week we finished chapter 8, so our text today is going to be chapters 9 and 10. Uh, Just to remind you of the context, at the end of chapter 6, having overcome both significant outward opposition and internal strife as well, the project of rebuilding the walls was finally completed. Shortly thereafter, in chapter 8, the people gathered to hear Ezra preach and teach the Scriptures preach the law of the Lord. In response, the people wept as they were confronted with the reality of their idolatry and their sinful disobedience as a people. However, the Feast of Booze, which was supposed to be a time of rejoicing, was now upon them. The Feast of Booze, I remind you, it was a God-ordained week-long fast where the people camped in booths and tents in order to commemorate their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. You will recall that after God delivered them, the people lived in tents for quite some time until they eventually settled in, um, in the Promised Land. So this Feast of Booths, it was an annual time of rejoicing. And in light of this, Ezra commanded the people, and Nehemiah as well, they commanded the people not to weep, but instead to eat, drink, feast, (laughs) celebrate. They commanded them to rejoice in the Lord's goodness and salvation and be glad. And on each day of this feast, Ezra proclaimed the law of the Lord. He read the scriptures to them. Which brings us right up to our text today, which is chapters 9 and 10. And since it's such a lengthy text, we're going to read just the first five verses of chapter 9. I'm then going to summarize other portions of the text as we go along in the sermon. So let us now prepare our hearts, dear brothers and sisters, to be addressed by God himself. As Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. These are the words of God. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins And the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Cadmio, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani, and they cried out 
with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashbaneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for how your holy word refreshes us, renews us, and inspires us to live for you. So, Heavenly Father, we ask you now in this moment to re-speak the truth of your word to our hearts. By your Holy Spirit, O God, illuminate your word to our hearts and grant us, Lord, grant us fresh vision to live under your word and under your law, pursuing daily renewal as followers of Jesus Christ. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. And everyone said together, amen, amen. Some of you know, uh, one period of church history that has long interested me is the time of the Great Awakening that took place in the 18th century under the leadership and preaching of men such as Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. During this time, some of you know, the Spirit of God was mightily poured out on the American colonies as well as in Great Britain as large numbers of people flocked to Christ and came to a saving knowledge of him. It's interesting to note um, in studying the Great Awakening that before the first Great Awakening was a revival outside of the church, it was first a revival and renewal inside the church. Prior to the Great Awakening, in the 1700s, early 1700s, many who attended church, including some pastors, the reality was many of them were not converted. Churchgoers, even pastors, not Christians. Cold, stuffy religious formalism was, in this time, more common than not. Many were cultural Christians, so to speak. Um, who were not truly living for Jesus. They were not truly living their lives for him. In 1706, one pastor, Cotton Mather, described the situation in this way. And Andrew, I think I've got this. It is confessed by all who know anything of the matter that there is a general and horrible decay of Christianity. So again, this is before the Great Awakening. Among the professors of it. The modern Christianity is too generally but a very specter, scarce a shadow of the ancient. In other words, the spirituality is nothing like it once was. Now there goes on. Ah, sinful nation. Ah, children that are corruptors. What have your hands done? So that, that's 
the situation in the early 1700s. Thankfully, in the Great Awakening, 1720s, 30s, and the 40s, through the faithful preaching of God's Word, countless individuals in the church became awakened to their lost condition. They then cast themselves on Jesus Christ, and they repented of their sins. Because it was such a massive revival, the effect was felt throughout the colonies and throughout Great Britain as well. In our passage today, Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10, we should know that something very similar was happening. What we have here in Nehemiah's, Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10 was, in effect, a great awakening. After many decades in exile, God had brought the people back to the land. We've seen that thus far in our study of Nehemiah. They had now also successfully rebuilt both the temple, that was Ezra, and the walls. That's Nehemiah. Even so, as our text bears out, many of the people... Many of the people were still, at this point, not fully committed to Yahweh. They were, you could say, in the words of Cotton Mather, children that are corruptors. They were, in effect, cultural followers of Yahweh. Sadly, many had made sinful compromises with the pagan peoples of the land and thus needed to once again be confronted with the Word of God. They needed to be confronted once again with the law of God and repent of their sins. We saw this theme back at the end of the book of Ezra, and here here again we see this same situation. The people of God have slid into sin, and they're needing to repent. Now, in hearing all this, someone, someone might think, okay, I'm not doing perfect in my walk with Jesus, but, you know, I'm not exactly in the place these people were, or the people in the early 1700s. Someone might think, I'm not a, just a cultural follower of Jesus. My heart is not, is not cold towards the Lord. I may have my days, but generally speaking, my heart's not cold towards the Lord. So how does this passage, how does this narrative apply? Good question. I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Because, dear brothers and sisters, you and I, all of us, still battle the flesh and remaining sin. And because life in a fallen world is not easy, and because we have an enemy, Satan, who opposes us, and because lukewarmness Compromise and religious formalism is not something any one of us is immune to. Because of those things, there is no believer in Jesus Christ that is not in need of daily spiritual renewal. Not one. Not one of us. Not one of us in this room is not in need, in great need of daily spiritual renewal. And thankfully, the passage before us gives us powerful insight into things we can do, things that we can do that will tend to both protect us from lukewarm indifference in our relationships with the Lord and simultaneously promote ongoing spiritual renewal and vibrancy. Does anybody here want that? Ongoing spiritual renewal and vibrancy. I know I do. Well, in this passage, we find the way forward. We find ways 
that we can have that, things that we can pursue to that end. So if you feel your need for daily spiritual renewal, this passage is for you. And even if you don't, this passage is for you as well. So let us now consider a survey of the text. Two days after the Feast of Booths concluded, we arrive at the events of our passage, chapter 9, verse 1, where we see the people gathered together in a solemn assembly. This is a church service, essentially. They're gathered together in a solemn assembly, the text says, with fasting and in sackcloth, and with earth or dust on their heads, symbolizing their sorrow. So, um, just to get our bearings here, this was the effect, all right, of the preached word through Ezra in chapter 8 and the continual reading of God's law throughout the Feast of Booze, and then again the reading of God's law on this very day when they were gathered. The effect of the law of God and the word of God on their souls as a people was deep, heartfelt grief and contrition for sin. For a quarter of a day, which the text says, and commentators note, quarter of a day in that time means three hours. For three hours, this is incredible. For three hours, the people just listened to the word of God, the law of God being read. And for another three years, they, not three years, three hours, three years, that would be a long time. For another three hours, they confessed their sins. Three hours hearing the law of God, another three hours confessing their sins and worshiping the Lord. And that fact alone, I think you would agree, that shows that this was a revival. Even the most committed believers wouldn't typically uh, attend a six-hour church service apart from a mighty move of God's Holy Spirit. In the remainder of chapter 9... Um, the Levites led the people in a corporate prayer of praise, of worship, of, um, of exalting God. And then this corporate prayer of worship was then followed by a prayer of confession. So that's chapter 9, prayer of worship, prayer of confession. In verses 6 to 15, the focus of this prayer is clearly worship. Together, in the corporate assembly, the people extol God as creator. They praise him for calling Abraham and covenanting with him to give his descendants the land of Canaan. They exalt the Lord for miraculously delivering them from slavery in Egypt. They praise Yahweh God for leading them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They worship the Lord for giving his people the law of God, the Ten Commandments, through Moses on the Mount of Mount Sinai. And they praise him for the miraculous provision of bread and water during their wilderness wanderings. Then in verse 16, the prayer transition. It transitions from this focused worship of Yahweh, focused worship of the Lord, to humble confession. And this focus continues on from 16 through to verse 31. Here's just a sampling of the sins that, <laughs> that they confessed to the Lord. Refusal to obey God's commandments. That's a huge one. 
They confess that sin. Verses 16, 17, 29. They confess their failure. Verse 17, to remember how Yahweh had miraculously delivered them from Egypt. God had done that for them, but they, they forgot. They as a people worshipped the golden calf and committed great blasphemies in the process of doing so. That's verse 18. They cast God's law aside. God's law, the Ten Commandments, the Torah, cast aside, threw it behind their backs. They killed the prophets, verse 26. And they rebelled against God, verse 35 talks about, even in, even in the midst of God blessing them with incredible prosperity. They still rebelled against God's law. In spite of these sins um, that I've just mentioned and more, this prayer of confession repeatedly highlights the goodness, the grace, and the steadfastness of God. They repeatedly declare such truth as we see in verse 17. And I like the way the LSB translates verse 17. You are God of lavish forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. The ESV says steadfast love and hear this, and you did not forsake them. So if you read verses 16 to 31, you just see refrains like that continually popping up. There's this confession and deep sorrow for sin. And included that are these wonderful affirmations of the character of God, the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God, a God who never leaves, a God who never forsakes, in spite of the rebellion and hostility and disobedience of his people. So that's, that's 16 to 31, conf- confession mingled with thanks to God. Verses 32 to 37 then focus mostly on the catastrophic consequences and hardship that their sin had justly brought on them. Verse 33, you can look there. The people declare, for you have dealt faithfully and we have dealt, acted, excuse me, wickedly. You have dealt faithfully, we have acted wickedly. And saying we, um, the assembly acknowledges their own guilt. Okay, Not just the guilt of their fathers, forefathers, they're acknowledging their own guilt as they themselves had walked in the pattern of rebellion and disobedience that their forefathers had modeled for them. Then in verse 38, you'll notice the narrative transitions again as we read that the people made a covenant, a covenant with God, a covenant of repentance to repent of their rebellion against Yahweh God. So chapter 10 begins with a list of names of prominent leaders who signed this covenant on behalf of the people. And then verses 28 to 39 contain the specific commitments that the people made. And the essence of their of this covenant promise that they made to God, this um, covenant of repentance, as, as it were, is found in verse 29. You can look there with me. They entered into an oath... It says, to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. 
So there's repentance, confession of sin, and now a covenant of repentance. They're making commitments to the Lord. As part of this covenant, this commitment, they vowed to not allow their sons and daughters to marry unconverted pagan people. That's verse 30. Who would draw their hearts away from Yahweh to serve idols. King Solomon, centuries earlier, is a great example of why this was such a bad thing to do. It was Solomon's fatal mistake. The Jewish heart away from God. As we saw in Ezra, marrying outside of the covenant people of God was a major problem in this time period and one of the main sins the people needed to repent of again in Nehemiah 10. We see that the people, as part of their repentance, also vowed to keep the Sabbath, verse 31. Furthermore, they vowed to tithe and give generously to the Lord and His work. That's verses 32 to 39. They vowed to financially support all that was involved in fostering the right-hearted worship and service of Yahweh in the temple. And in all of this, it's critical that we realize the people were not merely confessing sin, they were also actively repenting. This was, this was not here just an emotional response to good preaching where they come under conviction and so let me just, I'm going to just sign this and alright, I'm not going to sin in these ways but then <laughs> the result is going and living however you want. This, that's, this is not that. This is not just an emotional response. This was a true great awakening. And we know because the result of this revival, the result of this revival was Jerusalem was now called, if you want to look there, 11.1. 11 verse 1. Jerusalem was now called, as a result of this revival, the holy city. Okay, And you see that again in verse 18. The holy city. And I believe these are the first times In the Old Testament, Jerusalem was called the holy city. And that goes to show how powerful this revival was. (laughs) The people really repented such that it could be called a holy city. So, that's an overview of the text. That's a survey of the text. And as an application of it, as an application of this passage, I now want to highlight... Three things drawn from this story that we can do that will tend to promote spiritual renewal in our own lives, in our families, and in our life together corporately. So three things we can do that will tend to promote ongoing, uh, daily, weekly spiritual renewal in our lives. So the first thing we can do, first point, is to treasure corporate worship. Treasure corporate worship. So the people in our story, at the beginning they were, many of them were stuck in cold religious formalism. They heard the word of the Lord, the law of God read, and in response, what did they do? They worshipped God. That was their response. They worshipped God. They exclaimed, verse 5, chapter 9, verse 5. You can look there. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all. Blessing and praise. 
The people then went on to, as we saw in our overview, exalt Yahweh and worship Him in prayer for how He had been good and gracious and faithful to them as a people. Um, Not at just one period of time, but throughout their entire existence as a people. So we see here what this shows us is what a key role corporate worship played in this revival, in this great awakening that was taking place. And applied to us, this helps us to see that corporate worship can play a key role in our ongoing spiritual vitality and renewal. For as one theologian has said, sorry, I don't have this quote for you, but it's awesome. Worship is transformative. We become like what we worship. Why is corporate worship a place where we can be renewed and revitalized as believers? Because worship is transformative. We become like what we worship. And what this author means is when we worship the God who is holy, when we worship the God who is holy with our lives first, but with our mouths as well as they did here in the passage, When we do that, when we worship the God who is holy, what happens? Something happens to us. We don't remain unaffected. We also become holy. When we worship the God who is the righteous one of all, something happens. We become more righteous. When we worship the one who is loving, we become increasingly more loving. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, beholding Jesus Christ, we are transformed. What does he say? We are transformed from one degree of glory, one degree of glory to another. You'll observe in our story that the people, they worship the Lord in this prayer of praise, this prayer of worship, that the people were specific and detailed in their worship. Their prayer did not just make general statements about God, such as, God, you are good, and God, you are faithful, and that was that. Instead, in their prayer, in their prayer, the people focused precisely on how, on how God had been good and faithful to them. They reviewed the mighty acts of God in history on their behalf, moving from creation to the call of Abraham, to their deliverance from slavery in Egypt, and so on and so forth. Their worship was filled out with content of what God had done for them. This is in contrast to many modern worship songs that while they say some good things and at times move us emotionally, they often, not always, but they often lack this kind of specificity that you see in the text in their worship. And consequently, those songs don't help us as much as they could to truly know, love, trust, and obey God more, which is what authentic spiritual renewal is about. What is authentic spiritual renewal about? It's about us knowing God more, and then as a result, loving Him more, and actually, in reality, through the trials of life, trusting Him more, and obeying Him more. And... The effect of the people in our text recounting what God had done, worshiping in this way, was spiritual renewal in their lives. 
Just as an experiment this past week, I told the modern AI tool, (laughs) ChatGPT, some of you know about it, I said to ChatGPT, ChatGPT, write me a modern worship course on love and the goodness of God. And I want to share with you what ChatGPT came up with. All right, here's what it came up with. Do we have it, Andrew? All right, good. In the stillness of the morning as the sun begins to rise, I see your goodness shining. It's a sweet and boundless prize. In every breath I'm taking, in every step I walk, I'm overwhelmed by your love. I'm lost in all you've taught. Oh, the goodness of God, it's a river so wide, flowing deep deep and unending like a rolling tide. You're the anchor in my storm the refuge in my strife. In your goodness, O Lord, I find eternal life. Bridge, though mountains may crumble and oceans roar and swell, your goodness stands unshaken. My heart is overwhelmed. In every high and low, in joy or in defeat, your goodness is my song, my victory complete. Um, If you don't know what ChatGPT is, it's an artificial intelligence computer. (laughs) Uh, That's actually not too bad. I, I thought that. I was like, I read that. I was like, wow, that, not too bad for a uh, <laughs> a computer. A few tweaks, a few chords, and we might actually have a hit there. Um, in, I share that with you for this reason. In contrast with many modern worship songs and my chat GPT song, the prayer of worship in our text and the prayers and songs that we find in the Psalms and elsewhere in Scripture, they reflect deep thought and meditation on the character and works of God, such that tends to truly renew and transform the mind and the heart of the believer. It's noteworthy that the doctrinally rich, heart-stirring hymns of Isaac Watts played a pivot, they actually played a pivotal role in the Great Awakening. A lot of people think that the Great Awakening was just about great preaching. And there was great preaching, to be sure. I mean, if you're listening to Whitfield preach, you're hearing great preaching. If you're hearing Jonathan Edwards preach, you're hearing great preaching. But that's not the only thing that was going on that was fostering this renewal and this great revival that took place in the 1700s. It was also singing. So, the, the, the hymns, the doctrinally rich hymns of Isaac Watts, this is just one example, they played a huge role in the Great Awakening. His ham, hymns were frequently sung at the meetings where George Whitfield preached, and I don't know what specific songs of Isaac Watts that they sang, but I know Watts was an amazing songwriter, penning hymns, treasured hymns such as, When I Survey... The wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. And God our help in ages past. So you just picture the Great Awakening. George Whitfield preaching. And then the people singing these wonderful truths from God's Word. What's the result? It's renewal. Internal revival. The songs play a part. And as a church, this is why in corporate worship, we value doctrinally rich, gospel-saturated lyrics set to singable melodies. It's, it's because what we see in the Psalms and passage like this, passages like this is that when we consider the glory 
of who God is. When we consider the glory of who God is as he who has revealed himself in his word, when we consider that, by God's spirit, our hearts are changed. They are renewed. When we consider the character of God as he has revealed himself in the word, as we consider the gospel and the glories of what Jesus has done and the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God as revealed in Scripture. When we consider this thing, these things, our hearts, and in detail, in specifics, our hearts are revived. They are reinvigorated. They are renewed. So, application. Uh, may God help us to continue to treasure corporate worship as a church. You do. I love this about you. But may God continue to help us to treasure corporate worship. And may he help us to even treasure it more in the days ahead. Um, and the reason I say that is um, I think that the more we see corporate worship as a means of grace and spiritual renewal, the more we see this time together as we're lifting our hearts and voices to the Lord and then hearing the word too, but the more we see this time as I need this and we come with an attitude of, Holy Spirit, fill me as I sing these songs. I need this. I need your truth. I need this truth that we're singing about. The more we come with that attitude, I think we're positioning ourselves for that kind of kindling and inner renewal and that kind of revival we all need at the end of a week, don't we? We all walk through this fallen world, challenges and difficulties. There are ways that we sin every week. And so we need to come in here on Sunday. Lord, revive me. We need that kind of renewal weekly. And when we come with that mindset of expectancy, I think it will actually um, foster us encountering the Spirit of God more. I sense the Spirit mightily among us during worship. I'm sure many of you did as well. Um, let's continue to press in with that and ask God to meet us as he's so faithful to to do. Second thing we can do to foster spiritual renewal in our lives. First was to treasure corporate worship. The second thing is regularly consider God's law. These things are kind of counterintuitive. We don't tend to associate these means of grace with renewal, but they are here in the, in the text. It's the second point. Regularly consider God's law. So in response to the word of God preached, the people worshipped. Led by seven Levites, they also confessed their sins, their own sins and the sins of their forefathers. And what I, what I want to point out here is this. There's a critical connection. Uh, what led the people to confess their sins, which was necessary for their spiritual renewal? What led them to do that? What led them there? Well, it was nothing less than the reading and preaching of God's law that took place in chapters 8 and 9. While we don't know the exact portion of God's law that they read, we do know that they read God's law, His commands as contained in the Torah, which was their Bible. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Almost certainly their reading of the law included the Ten Commandments. And so we should be clear that the revival that took place in chapters 9 and 10 would not have taken place apart from the preaching of God's law. God's law, by the Holy Spirit, was the instrumental cause 
of this powerful revival. This points to the fact that spiritual renewal and ongoing spiritual vibrancy and growth as well hinges in part on exposing ourselves regularly to God's law. And by God's law, I just mean, I mean, I'm speaking of the Ten Commandments in Scripture. Um, but all, not just the Ten Commandments, really all the commands of God in Scripture. I, I really could preach a whole sermon on this, but suffice it to say, I believe in our day, the church is in desperate need of recovering the applicability of God's law to the Christian life. I believe this is a huge need in the church in general in our day. The psalmist declared, Psalm 119.97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119, verse 131, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. I long for your Commandments. Do we as Christians speak this way? Psalm 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect. <laughs> reviving the soul. There's connection there. Personal renewal. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. Now, disclaimer. You know well, we are not saved by our obedience to the law. Highlight, underscore, put it in bold. We are not saved by our obedience to the law. We are saved, praise God, By grace alone, through faith alone. We are justified not on the basis of what we have done, but on the basis of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Praise the Lord. It's always true. We always want to stay sharp on that. Disclaimer over. As people, we desperately need God's law. We desperately need God's law. We need God's law to daily convict us of sin, lead us to the cross, convict us of sin, lead us to the cross, and thereby revive and renew our souls. We also need God's law to guide us, to show us the way of righteousness. Um, I'm glad I'm not alone in thinking that we need a recovery of God's law on this topic. R.C. Sproul wrote this several years back. He's sort of my modern-day theological hero, Dr. R.C. Sproul. So he wrote this a couple years back. We are living in an era in which the law of God is not given much attention either by secularists or by Christians. (laughs) So not in the culture, not in the church. The law, we assume, is a relic of the past, part of the history of Judeo-Christianity, to be sure, but of no abiding relevance to the Christian life. He goes on. A recent survey by George Gallup Jr. revealed a startling trend in our culture. According to Gallup, the evidence seems to indicate that there are not clear behavioral patterns that distinguish Christians from non-Christians in our society. Isn't that grieving? The evidence seems to indicate that there are not clear behavioral patterns that distinguish Christians from non-Christians in our society. We all seem to be marching to the same drummer, looking to the shifting standards of contemporary culture for the basis of what is acceptable conduct. What everybody else is doing seems to be our only ethical norm. He goes on. The law drives us to the gospel. Pause. 
Without the gospel and being convicted of our sins, we never flee to the cross. Apart from the law, we can't rejoice in the glory and majesty and wonder of grace which has been poured out on us. Apart from the law, we can't rejoice in the glorious salvation that God has given us. The law drives us to the gospel. The gospel saves us from the curse of the law. Praise Him. But in turn, directs us back to the law. Listen carefully. To search its spirit, its goodness, and its beauty. Do you think of the law in that way as having goodness and beauty that we need to search? The law of God is still a lamp unto our feet. Without it, we stumble and trip and grope in the darkness. Here's the application, brothers and sisters. May we greatly esteem, resting in our justification, resting in the gospel, may we greatly esteem and regularly consider God's law. Even as our souls rest secure in the gospel of grace, may we regularly make it our practice to meditate on God's law in order that we might not be among those who stumble and trip and grope in the darkness, but instead be those who glorify God in our own lives, in our own families, and in the church. The way this works, folks, is when we are filled with an amazing awareness of what Jesus has done for us, we're resting in grace, worshiping God for the gospel, Well, the overflow of that should be, Lord, I love you so much. How could I sin against you? I love your law. Help me to obey it. That's to be the mindset every day. It's not to ignore God's law, but it's out of love and worship. Not mere duty. The duty is part of it. Out of worship for the Lord, we seek to obey His law. And so it's important for us. We don't want to trip and grope to keep God's law in front of us. Questions 7 to 12 in the New City Catechism. They're a tremendous aid to meditating on God's law. Specifically as revealed in the Ten Commandments. I'd encourage you to consider reviewing those as part of your own devotional life. Reviewing those. If you're um, a parent, Fathers especially, moms as well. Lead your children in considering the commandments of God. Because these commandments, parents, even when we're gone, we want the word of God to guide them. May they hear the voice of the Lord. We want to preach the gospel. We want to preach the law clearly. One other point here. May we pray for the surrounding culture as well. That what happened in Nehemiah 9 and 10 would happen in our communities and in our Nation, may we pray for revival. This is part of my, um, I seek to pray for this. And when I'm praying through the Lord's Prayer, Lord, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then I say, God, pour out your spirit. Bring revival. Many friends of yours today, many family members of all of ours that we know and love, at this very moment, they are groping in the darkness. And that is true of our nation as well. And it's very important that we as Christians are clear on why this is so. The essential reason is they have forsaken God's rule in law 
just like the people of Israel did in their history, which landed them in exile, and just like Adam and Eve did, which got them cast out of the garden. So, may we as Christians be faithful to graciously yet clearly, this is an application point, graciously yet clearly proclaim the Ten Commandments and the law of God to the world around us in hope that many might turn to Christ. We want to see what happened in Nehemiah 9 and 10 happen in our relationships, in our community, in our country. We want to see people hear the law of God preached, hear God's holy standard, then come under conviction and repent and turn from their sins and receive the mercy of God. So may we be faithful to proclaim Christ and trust that the Lord to move powerfully by His Spirit and then bring, bring incredible flourishing and renewal that comes from living under His uh, rule and reign. People think that freedom is found outside of submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the Kingship of Christ. But freedom is not found in doing whatever you well feel like doing. Freedom, true freedom, is found in submission to Christ and doing what pleases Him because for therein is all human flourishing. God's law was given for our flourishing and our joy. So may God help us to proclaim it. Third thing we can do to foster spiritual renewal in our lives. When we sin, repent. When we sin, repent. In response to the preaching of the word, the people confessed their sins to the Lord. They worshiped. And end of verse 9, they also signed a covenant. And in that covenant, they committed in writing to repent. They solemnly vowed in writing to turn from and no longer walk in the sins they just confessed. Namely, the sin of allowing their children to marry unbelievers as well as the sin of failing to financially support the temple worship of the Lord. This reminds us, brothers and sisters, that when we sin, when we violate God's law, it is not sufficient for us to merely confess our sins to God. It's not sufficient to merely say, Lord, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. It's certainly a good start. But we cannot end there. We must also repent. We must turn from our sin. We must do an about face and go in the opposite direction. And no longer do the thing we were doing that God says, don't do that. Sin produces cold religious formalism with no power. And sin produces death. Repentance, on the other hand, brings renewal. It brings spiritual aliveness and vibrancy. I've mentioned before, Martin Luther in the first of his 95 theses stated, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentant. And the reason Luther said that is because he understood that, as he also said, that the believer is simultaneously, at the same time, both a sinner and a saint. Meaning, follow me on this, we are sinners in the sense that we still sin and struggle with sin. Yet, at the very same time, 
simultaneously we are saints in that we are new creations in Christ, which, by the way, is it is our primary identity. Our identity is decidedly not in the sin that we struggle with. Praise the Lord for that. We are now new creations in Christ, sons and daughters of God. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Consequently, sin is not our identity. And we have the power not to sin. So when we sin, what do we do? We cast ourselves on the mercy of God. That's our only hope, brothers and sisters. Any day of the week when we sin, we cast our sins on the lavish mercy of God. We confess our sin as they did here. We say, God, I was wrong. I sinned. I violated your law. I disregarded it. I cast it behind my back in that moment when I sinned. And then we receive. (laughs) We receive God's lavish forgiveness made possible by the death of Jesus in our place on our behalf. So we cast our... Aren't you thankful for the mercy of God this morning? We have a place to go. We have a place to run, we sin, and it is the cross of Jesus Christ. There's forgiveness full and free provided for everyone who puts their faith in Him. So we confess our sin... Receive forgiveness, and then what? (laughs) Then what? We make it our aim to not sin in that particular way again. And for the believers, Luther pointed out, this is to be our way of life every day. Every day when we sin. We need to get in the habit. Every day when we sin. Sometimes it's just a little thing. Maybe something in your head, right? I thought, that was wrong. That was sinful. That was ungodly. That was judgmental. That was impure. That was proud. Or an action. We confess it to the Lord. We flee to the cross. We receive his forgiveness. And and then we seek to repent. Way of life. Every day. Knowing there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In the power of the Spirit. We turn from our sin. That's actually a very revitalizing thing and refreshing to do. Repentance doesn't need to be this drudgery. It's thank you, Lord, I'm forgiven. Thank you, Lord, that I'm cleansed. Lord, now because I love you, I'm moving in this other direction. Now fill me with the power of the Spirit so so that I walk in your ways, in keeping with my new identity. And out of love for the Lord, it's actually a very joyful thing. Um, What a good thing to know that when, when we sin, we have the opportunity to repent. There's never a point in time in the Christian journey where we don't have that opportunity. It's provided. It's there. You could, you're never so deep, dear brother, dear sister, in your sin that you can't repent now and turn and experience the grace of God and the life of God and the flourishing that comes from living under his rule and reign. So we never stop doing that. Confessing, receiving forgiveness, turning, even with sins that are besetting. We don't stop. So let's bring this home, and I would like to ask the band to join me. I am firmly confident, as one of your pastors, that the vast majority in this room long to live vibrant Christian lives. I believe that there's a hunger for that here that is not just like this little thing, but it is strong. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you, 
And you want to honor Jesus Christ. You want to live a spiritually vibrant life. I don't believe that anyone here wants to be guilty of religious formalism. The kind of thing the people in the early 1700s were guilty of before the Great Awakening. The people in our passages, we arrived at chapter 9. We don't want to be guilty, do we? We don't want to be uh, Christians in name only. People who just punch the card. Yeah, I go to church, but then during the week we live however they want. None of us, no, you guys don't want to live that way. We don't want to be lukewarm. Who of us wants to be lukewarm and receive the rebuke of the church of Laodicea in, in the book of Revelation? None of us. We do not want to be lukewarm. We do not want to be people who compromise. And in this passage, we've seen that there are three things we can do to avoid that path. By daily pursuing spiritual renewal. By weak spiritual renewal uh, shouldn't, for the mature believer, just be an event. It should be a way of life for us. Seeking renewal. Seeking revival. In this passage, we've seen three things we can do to avoid that path of carelessness and compromise and pursue daily renewal. What are we? What can we do? We can treasure corporate worship, treasure these times, pray for them, pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit when we gather upon our singing, upon our hearing of the word of the Lord. We can regularly consider God's law, not, not see it as like, hey, that's legalism to, be, to think about the law. No, we can regularly sit under the law of God and allow the Spirit to do his work. Um, not afraid of what the Lord's going to show us. Search me and know me, the psalmist says. Show me even my hidden faults. We should never fear that. Never fear that. Never think that's legalism. Why? Because we have an awesome Savior who cleanses us of every single sin. Past, present, future. We should never be afraid of that. Sitting under God's law promotes spiritual renewal. So we regularly consider that. And then when we sin, third thing we learn, we can repent. We don't just stay where we're at, but we say, Lord, fill me. Even if it's a besetting sin, even if you've fallen a hundred times in something. God's word calls us to repent. He calls us to turn and to aim to not do that again. The Lord wants to help us because he's with us and he's mighty and he's powerful and good. Dear brothers and sisters, he wants to help us on all these things because he's a great savior. He loves us so much. Let's stand together. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you how your word presses us away from religious formalism towards spiritual vibrancy and renewal. And Father, we pray that in the days ahead, you would mightily refresh us and renew us as we seek to apply this word to our hearts. Blow upon us, O Holy Spirit. Illuminate your word and your law to our hearts. Refresh us in your love. Help us for your glory and namesake. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said together, amen.